Well, uh, Heather and I um, celebrated our 22nd wedding anniversary this past week. April, April 16th, 1994. So 22 years of wedded bliss. So. But for anniversary, we decided to take a little trip, a little couple days up to Seattle. Haven't been up there in a long time and liked it last time we were there. So we went up there and did a lot of fun stuff. Obviously, we had a romantic candlelight dinner because it was our anniversary. Um, one of the highlights, we went over to University of Washington, and while we went there walking around the stadium, the team happened, happened to be practicing, the football team. We walked all the way around the stadium, happened to be a gate that was open, so we walked through the gate, and there we were, standing on the sidelines in the University of uh, Washington Husky Stadium, watching them practice, and Heather said, what are we doing? I go, just act like you know what you're doing. You know what I mean? And no, no one said a word to us, and we stood there and took pictures of the players and whatnot, some of them posed and whatnot, it was fun, it was really fun. We obviously went downtown, we went down to Pike's Place Market, I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's fun, did some people watching down there. But the highlight, we, we took a ferry over to Bainbridge Island, and a quaint little town, it's what I, I've never been to Maine, but it's what I imagine Maine to look like, just a cute little fishing village, shops, restaurants, quiet little town, but the ferry ride, I don't know if you've ever been on a ferry in Seattle, it's not like the Balboa Ferry that holds three or four cars. The ferries up in Seattle hold, I'm guessing, I don't know the number, but hundreds of cars, they come in droves, literally, they're, they're, they fill the bottom section, row after row after row, and then there's a second level, and then row after row after row, and then the third level, there's a restaurant and a lounging area. It's amazing, pretty impressive. But I don't think you should ever go on any seaworthy vessel without taking a, one of these shots here. I think everybody needs one of those. So uh, <clears throat> that's on the ferry Tacoma headed to Bainbridge Island, and everybody needs a, a Jack and Rose moment. Like I said, on any seagoing vessel. That was a great, great time. But um, that's cool. And uh, that's why I said, it, I, I, obviously I said the, the line, I got to say it, if I'm in that pose, I said, I'm the king of the world. But it didn't take long for me to realize, wait a minute, I'm not the king of the world. I said, uh, Jack Dawson's not the king of the world. Leonardo DiCaprio's not the king of the world. But I know who the king of the world is. Matter of fact, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, refers to him as the god of this world. And it's not God. That's not what we're referring to. We're talking about Satan. It's called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And if we're going to fight the God of this world, then we have to be spiritually equipped. We need our armor. We need to put it on. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So our passage is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17. So if you can go ahead and make your way over there. We're actually going to start in verse 10, though, something that Ryan covered very eloquently last week. We'll, uh, we'll use that to set up this passage, verses 14 through 17 tonight. So Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. And it says this. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, here's our passage now. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And with that, pray with me. God, we want to thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for all the book of Ephesians. It's been amazing studying it with only one more week to go after this week. God, we want to thank you for all that you've taught us about 
marriages, about children, about the workplace, and now about spiritual battle, God. Thank you that you've given us this armor that we're going to study tonight to equip us. We pray that we would wear it, and uh, we realize that we're not alone in this battle. So thank you for your help, and uh, look forward to hearing from you tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two things I want to point out right out of the gate that you notice from our passage. Well, verse 11 and verse 13 both tell us to put on the whole armor of God. All of it. The Greek word is panoplia, P-A-N-O-P-L-I-A. And it means just that. Put on every piece that God has provided to equip us with. Tonight we're going to look at six pieces, technically seven, prayer. Pastor Ella's going to cover that next week. But we're going to look at six pieces that God's provided for us to put on tonight. And he expects us to employ all six pieces. I think about... At the fire department, when we go in to fight a fire, we go in to battle a fire, we put on what's called our full PPEs, our full personal protective equipment. I never go into a fire and think, you know what? I got my helmet on. I got my turnout jacket on. I got my turnout pants on. I got my boots on. Ah, breathing apparatus, that thing's bulky and heavy. I don't need that. I'm not going to wear that today. You don't think like that. You think, I need all of it, my full personal protective equipment. And in the same way, in the spiritual battle, we need all of it, all the full armor of God, and we're told twice that we need to put on all of it. So once you've got this armor on, you're going to look something like this. Got a picture of a warrior up here with a full armor of God on. You're going to look like that, right? He's got all the armor that we're going to talk about, all that we just read about. Well-equipped, ready to go. But what you can't tell in the picture, but you obviously know, he's got nothing to protect his back. It's all on the front. In other words, you can't retreat and run from the battle. You're not expected to. You'll be left unprotected. You have to stand. Three times in this passage, Paul tells us to stand. Stand firm. Stand, therefore. You've got to stand and face the battle. It's what God's called us to do. Stand, stand, stand. So I just, right out of the gate, I put it this way. Number one on our outline, remember, the Christian life isn't a playground. It's a battleground. The Christian life isn't a playground. It's a battleground. Maybe when you, uh, someone shared with you about Christ in the beginning, you thought it was going to be all rainbows and butterflies, and it didn't take long before you found out that it wasn't. It truly is a battleground. But on this battleground, let's clearly, we already talked about it a little bit, but let's clearly, more clearly define who the combatants are. On one side, you have the Christian, but thankfully, not a Christian who's all alone. Like our passage told us in verse 10, it says that we're to stand strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's, it's, it is that God's on your team, but it's more that you're on his team. You're standing strong in him and in the power of his might. Proverbs 21, 31, you have to turn there, but it says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle. But victory belongs to the Lord, right? I'm going to do what I can do as a person, but ultimately victory belongs with him. So that's the combatant on one side. On the other side, obviously we have the devil. He's referred to in the Bible as Satan, the dragon. In our passage, the evil one, the serpent, and on and on and on. So there's your combatants, two on one. Sidebar real quick, I want to talk about the reality of Satan because one of the best lies that Satan's perpetrated in our culture, is that he doesn't even exist. That's a great lie. There's a lot of people that, that believe that. I've talked to people that believe that. What a great lie. It doesn't take long for me to realize that he does exist, though, because I'm going to take Jesus' words over their words. And in Luke 10, 18, Jesus said that I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. We're looking at a couple other passages where Jesus confronts Satan face-to-face. So if Jesus says he's real, if Jesus had real encounters with Satan, then we know he's real. Doesn't matter what the culture says. The Bible says that Satan is a real entity and we need to act accordingly. He's real. So now that we know who he is, that he's a real combatant, 
We want to look piece by piece at the armor, like I said, six pieces that God's given us to defeat him. So full disclosure, we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages tonight, so get your fingers ready. We're going to be turning a lot of pages tonight or, or your uh, iPad. First piece of armor that we read about, we talked about, verse 14, the belt of truth. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And if God wants us to put on the belt of truth, then what do you think our adversary is all about? He's all about lies. Turn over to John 8, 44. John 8, 44. God's all about truth, wants us to be all about truth, and listen what our adversary is all about. Second half of, of verse 44 of John chapter 8. Speaking of Satan, again, real entity, Jesus talking, words in red. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning... And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He's a liar and the father of lies. And it says, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Satan is characterized by lying. That's who he is. The other day, my daughter, Selah, she's uh, played soccer over to Soar High School. And they... Uh, organized the game the, between the, the, the boys' varsity team and the girls' varsity team, and they were going to mix them up and do an inter-squad game. And right before the game, a girl that had been committed to this, to this game for weeks texted her and said, I'm not going to be able to make it tonight. And my daughter said, listen, why is that? She says, oh, I've got five hours of homework. She goes, okay. Well, it didn't take long before Sayla sees her on social media at K1 speed, right? Because she had said, I'm not going to be able to go out at all tonight. I've got five hours of homework. Sayla asked her, hey, I thought you had five hours of homework but I see that you're over at K1 Speed, and she was left speechless. Well, her mom, we didn't say it, but her mom got wind of what went down and thankfully confronted her and said, sweetie, you're starting to put on a jacket of being someone that's untrustworthy. And once you, put on a, once you start to become characterized by lying, it's hard to take that jacket off. So whether she's just a one-time thing or she's starting to head down that road of being characterized by lying, it's a dangerous thing. But that's for an 18-year-old girl. What about you? What about me? Do we lie? Do we deceive people? I'll talk to the, to the wives first. Ladies, make it practical. You ever secretly buy yourself something? Don't, no show of hands. You ever buy yourself something? <laughs> and then and you don't tell your husband, not because buying it yourself something in and of itself is wrong, but you know for this month it's not in the budget. And you know he might get upset, so you buy yourself something and you don't tell him that you bought it deceptive, right? It's not what we want to be characterized by. Or maybe it's you do something for your kids or with the kids and then you tell them, don't tell daddy. Have you ever find those words coming out of your mouth? You do, when you do that, you're inadvertently teaching your kids that deception is okay. I remember when I was growing up, when people used to have home telephones, I don't know if anybody has them anymore, but the phone would ring and you'd answer it and they'd say, is your mom home? And you go, mom? And what would she always say? Tell them I'm not home. I don't know if your mom did. I'm not trying to throw my mom under the bus, but she did. And uh, I hope she's not watching. She's a, um, tell them I'm not home. You're sending a message there. Obviously, you are home, and you're teaching your kids that deceiving people and lying is okay. Husbands, uh, not to let us off the hook. How about when the boss needs someone to maybe fudge the numbers a little bit, maybe misrepresent the product? Does he know he can count on you to do that? Or does he not even waste his time coming to you because he knows you're a man of integrity and he doesn't even bother. Hopefully it's the latter. 
He said, if we're characterized by, by lying, or even like the gal I talked about earlier, the, the 18-year-old, if we're even headed down that path, here's God's counsel to you and me. I just put it up here on the screen. Ephesians 4.25, now that you're a Christian, it says, therefore, having put away falsehood, we shouldn't be known about for lying anymore. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Instead of lying, we need to be characterized by the truth. As far as putting on this belt of truth, that's how we're going to defeat Satan in that arena. Okay? First piece of armor, belt of truth. Next piece of armor God's given us, breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate of righteousness. If you're a believer here tonight, you have a breastplate of righteousness because of your trust in Christ. It's nothing you did, but the, day, the moment that you repented of your sins and placed your trust in him, you're given a breastplate of righteousness. And that's called imputed righteousness, something that God's given us as believers in him. So putting on the, putting on the breastplate of righteousness in a practical sense is living a life consistent with what you profess to believe. We've all heard people say, you know, that guy, that Christian, he talks the talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness means that we actually do walk the walk, albeit imperfectly. I get that. It's like Pastor Mike always says, we can't be sinless, but we can sin less as we grow in our sanctification. And we do put on that practical breastplate of righteousness. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Paul's going to talk about what the uh, works of the flesh look like and then what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. Beginning in verse 19. Galatians 5.19. says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's a bad list. And then verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Which one of these lists would you say characterizes you? If I were to go to your workplace and talk to your coworkers or talk to your neighbors or you were to come to my workplace and talk to my coworkers or my neighbors, what would they say? And I get it. I understand. We all sin from time to time, but is your life punctuated by these, by these lists or characterized by these lists? Because, you know, you look at the, the list here and you go, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Does that characterize you and me if I have to talk to your coworkers or your neighbors? Or you were to talk to mine? Or would the other list be more appropriate? They're filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I pray that it's the latter. Um, Satan wants you in the first camp. God wants you in the second, right? He says that. He says if you walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So putting on that daily breastplate of righteousness. Third piece of armor, shoes. Passage says, in his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. If there's anything that annoys our adversary <laughs> more, it's when we share the gospel. Maybe you're new to the Bible and you're saying, I keep hearing this term gospel thrown around. I don't even really know what that means. What do you talk about when you say the gospel? Well, here's a definition. Um, I got it on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15. 
1 through 4. This is the gospel in a nutshell. It says this. Paul talking, he says, Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That's what saves you. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So in a nutshell, the gospel is Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he raised again on the third day. That's the gospel. The reason it's called the gospel, also refer, sometimes referred to as the good news, is because it's the one and only way that God has provided for us to have our sins forgiven and come into a right relationship with him. It's good news. God loves it when we share the gospel. Romans 10, 15, another verse I put up here on the screen. It says this, how beautiful, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God loves it when we share the good news. Satan, on the other hand, he despises the gospel. He even tried to thwart it. Like I said, we're going to turn to a lot of passages. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. Watch how Satan tries to thwart this gospel. He uses one of Jesus' own followers to do it. Matthew 16. Beginning verse 21. It says this, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There it is. There's the gospel. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Peter. You see that there? What's it say? Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had unwittingly, temporarily become an agent of Satan, if you will, trying to stop Jesus from dying on our behalf. But thankfully, Peter couldn't stop Jesus from dying. Satan couldn't stop him. So because Satan couldn't stop him, he's changed his tactics. His new strategy is to water down the gospel and make it something that it isn't. Remember, like we just said, the, the biblical gospel is that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. The new gospel has become Jesus loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And although there's an element of truth to that statement, it's not the gospel. If you want to win the battle in this arena, putting on these shoes, you need to share the biblical gospel with whoever's willing to listen. God loves it. Satan hates it. Share a biblical gospel. Half our gear on already. Stay with me. Home stretch. Number four, take up the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you, which, with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Didn't take long after man and woman were created, Satan wasted no time in firing these flaming darts. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2. I'll show you what I mean. Genesis 2. Right out of the gate. He's talking to Adam. Beginning of verse 15. Genesis 2.15. says this. The Lord God took the man, put him in the, Adam, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every 
tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Drop down to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, representing Satan, he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, no, we, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This passage, Satan fires two darts, two flaming darts. One, did God actually say challenging the word of God. Did God actually say that marriage is between one man and one woman? Yeah, he did actually say that. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Did God actually say that? Yes, he did. Challenging the word of God. There's a flaming dart. Then, then he says, you will not surely die after God just said, you will surely die. Lying about what the consequence, remember he's a father of lies, he's lying about the, what the consequence would be for disobedience. Faith, take the shield of faith, faith comes down to whose word are you going to believe? You believe this, God's word? Or you believe some other voice? It says in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. So let's look at a couple of circumstances. For example, guys, Satan might shoot a flaming dart at you in the workplace by way of the temptation to flirt with someone who's not your wife. He may even use a male coworker to tell you, hey man, I know we're both married, bro, but you can look at the menu, you just can't order. I've heard guys say that. Boom, flaming dart launched. Guys, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Once that dart's launched, you know how to extinguish it? You might recall passages like this, and you say, wow, there's the temptation Jesus said, I'm reminded that Jesus said that if you even look at a woman and lust after her, I've already committed adultery with her in my heart. And because I love God and because I love my wife, I don't want to cheat on her, even if it's, quote, just in my heart. Boom, flame extinguished. Not to mention a great witness to your coworker. In all circumstances, ladies, you're at lunch. The girlfriend after women's Bible study over at Chick-fil-A. Kids are running around in the playground. They're talking to your friend, and, and she says, hey, hey, in a whispered tone, always in a whisper, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? We need to pray for her, right? Best way to gossip, prayer request. I love that. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, we need to pray for her. Does that ever happen? No, no show of hands. Does that happen? Not just gals. It happens with guys, too. There's, there you go, flaming dark, temptation to gossip. How do you extinguish that dart? Ladies, maybe remind yourself of what God's word says about gossip and slander. There's myriad of passages we could look at, but one, I'm reminded of Ephesians 4.29. We just read it not too long ago. We're in the book of Ephesians. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, 
but only such a word as is good for edification, for building people up, right? According to the need of the moment so that it may give grace to those who hear. And you filter your words and say, does my response to my friend include unwholesome words? The Greek means rotten words. Or are your words good for edification, for building up, and do they give grace to those that hear? Satan loves it when we gossip and tear others down. God loves it when we refrain from gossiping and build others up, especially fellow believers. Again, faith comes down to whose word do you trust? Shield of faith. Fifth piece of armor. Helmet of salvation. We're going to skip this one. We'll come back to it. We'll skip to number six. Number six, sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, ties in nicely with, with the, with the uh, shield of faith. If you want to know who wielded the sword of the Spirit perfectly when it, in his battle with Satan was Jesus. The last passage I'm going to have you turn to, but Matthew chapter 4. Look over at Matthew 4, beginning at verse 1. The prototype, perfect as you would expect, right? Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Now Satan's quoting Scripture. He's got, got good theology. It says, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You go, well, come on, man. It's Jesus. Like he said, prototype. You throw a flag on the play and say, come on. Of course, Jesus was able to use the word of God against Satan. After all, he's the author of the book. That's why he knows scripture so well. He wrote it, right? Obviously, I'm never going to attain to Jesus' knowledge of scripture. Granted, but see if this analogy works, okay? I don't know if you know this, but Mark Twain is alive. Mark Twain's back. He's alive, okay? We all know Mark Twain. You joined the Mark Twain fan club. You did it willingly. You joined the Mark Twain fan club back in 2010, six years ago. And when you join, Mark Twain himself asks you to not only read, but also to study the book, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. He also said there was no expiration date on that. He simply said, once you've read the entire book, he wants you to start over and read it again and again and again. Remember, back in 2010. It's been six years. And although you're not the author of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, you're not Mark Twain, is it unreasonable for Mark Twain to expect for you to have a firm grasp on the plot of the book. And not only that, but by now, have memorized large portions of what the book says. Is that unreasonable? You didn't write it. You're not Mark Twain. But you've been reading it and studying it for the last six years. 
In the same way, you've been a Christian since 2010 or since 2003 or since 1999, however long you've been a believer. How's your knowledge of God's Word? And have you been able to utilize it like Jesus did in your battle against Satan? Remembering that just because you're not the author, it's not an excuse. Are you growing in your knowledge of the Word? Or are you still a spiritual infant? We've got a verse up here on the screen, another one. Hebrews chapter 5 says this. This is an indictment for us if, we're, if we are still spiritual infants in the Word of God. He says this. The writer of the Hebrews says, About this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time, it's been six years, you should be teachers. You should be teaching Mark Twain, right? I mean, uh, Tom Sawyer. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, the word of God. You need milk, not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Your ability to use the word of God is directly proportional to your knowledge of the word of God. As far as our spiritual armor goes, and we're supposed to take up this sword, which is the Word of God. Does your sword look more like this? If you can see it, it's about a, if you're in the back, it's a two-inch pocket knife. This is the sword you wield, and you throw out verses like this. You say, cleanliness is next to godliness. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. You're throwing out verses like that. By the way, those aren't in the Bible, <laughs> right? But you're wielding your sword. This is what you've got. Although you've known the Lord since, like I said, 2010, you know, 2003, whatever. And this is what you willed. Or, do you this? Right? This is a real sword. Right? This is what God wants you to will. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Pastor Mike wrote about that just this week on his blog. I'll just read what he said about that living and active and sharpening any two-edged sword. He said, a living set of words depicts their perpetual relevance in any age to every person and in any circumstance. A set of active words refers to their power and authority over those to whom they are addressed. And a sharp set of words reminds us that they are convicting, often bringing that unpleasant pang of conscience which calls for our correction. We need the sword of the Spirit. We need a firm grasp on the Word of God if we're going to maximize our impact in our battle with Satan. Satan would love you to stay a spiritual infant. God would love you to grow up. I think I'm just going to hold this the rest of the time. <laughs> it just feels good. It's cool. Back to the helmet of salvation. Fifth piece of armor, but it's our last piece for tonight. First Thessalonians 5.8, we won't turn to it, but it speaks of the helmet of salvation. Look this up later, it's a great passage. It speaks of the helmet of salvation in connection to the hope of salvation. One commentator said this, he said, quote, the helmet of salvation protects us against discouragement, against the desire to give up, giving us hope not only in knowing that we are saved, but that we will be saved. 
It is the assurance that God will triumph. We're going to talk more about the helmet of salvation in just a bit. But for now, there you go. We've got the full armor of God on, well-equipped. We're back to the warrior guy on the screen here. Should be looking like this by now, right? Looking good, ready to go. So I'll put it this way, number two on our outline. Because once we put this armor on, we need to leave it on, right? You don't ever drop your sword. You don't take off the breastplate. I think about, again, when I'm in the midst of fighting a fire, I don't, right in the middle of fighting the fire, and all of a sudden go, you know what? I don't really need this breathing apparatus. I don't need this helmet or these boots. I don't take them off. Number two on our outline, we need to stay dressed for battle. Stay dressed for battle. Don't ever put these things down. Don't drop the word of God. Don't take off your breastplate of righteousness. Take off your helmet of salvation. Speaking of helmet of salvation, I, I can't help but think in a group this size that there's some of us out there that don't have the helmet of salvation because they're not saved. Anytime you get a group this size, that's just the case. It's just the way it is. But speaking of being saved, I showed you a picture earlier of Heather and I doing our best Jack and Rose moment on the, the bow of the uh, ferry called the Tacoma up in Seattle. It's, it's really ironic. It's crazy, really. The day we took that picture, and we didn't plan it, was the exact day, at least the anniversary of, the day that the Titanic sank on April 15th, the day we took the shot, 1912. I want to read you the timeline on what happened the night of April 14th into the early morning of April 15th when the Titanic sank. And I think we have a picture of it up here on the screen. Here's the timeline. Bear with me. Nine o'clock in the morning, April 14th. Titanic, two days after setting sail for the United States, senior operator Jack Phillips receives warnings of icebergs from other vessels. Captain Edward John Smith also receives two warnings that large icebergs are ahead of the Titanic, but he's not, he does not make a big deal of the situation. April 14th, 7.20 p.m., now it's in the evening. The SS Californian warns the Titanic that three large icebergs are ahead. Captain Smith, however, does not see the telegram until later that night. 8.55 p.m. Captain Smith retires for the evening, but notices that the evening's conditions are clear and calm. There are calm waters, a lack of wind, and no moonlight, which actually makes it exceptionally difficult to spot icebergs. 40 minutes later, operator Jack Phillips ignores a fifth ice warning from the SS Masaba, thinking it was, quote, non-urgent. 11.39 p.m. The lookouts, because of the moonless conditions, cannot see the iceberg until it is right ahead of the ship. Unfortunately, it's too late to avoid any collision. One minute later, at 8.40 p.m. that night, the Titanic hits the iceberg, striking the starboard bow. Because the ship continues to sail, many assume the blow did not damage the ship. April 15th, midnight. The SS Californian, which is 20 miles away, turns off her wireless communications for the evening. Titanic is now alone in the North Atlantic. Captain Smith gives the order to start loading lifeboats. The first lifeboat is launched 45 minutes later. It has a capacity for 64 people. It left with only 28 people on board. And the ship itself only has lifeboats for 1,178 people, a little more than half the number of people on board the Titanic. 
2.20 a.m. on the 15th. Within less than three hours, the Titanic slips beneath the surface of the freezing ocean water. Help arrives at 4.10 a.m., four and a half hours after the ship first hit the iceberg. 1,503 people perish in the icy waters of the North Atlantic. Arguably the greatest maritime disaster in history, and it could have all been avoided. The Titanic could have been saved. But the warnings of its impending doom were ignored over and over. There was at least five warnings that didn't, quote, seem urgent. Let's make this personal. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, how many times has God warned you about your own impending doom in an eternity separated from Him? Maybe your Christian coworker, your Christian neighbor, someone at the gym, someone in your mom's group, someone in your little league team has warned you. And I get it. Here's where you roll your eyes and look over at your wife and say, I knew it. Hey, coming to church, gloom and doom, scare tactics. Martha, let's get out of here, right? These aren't scare tactics. There's war- they're warnings and there's a big difference. Let me explain difference between scare tactics and warnings. Do you think the crew of the SS Californian was trying to scare the crew of the Titanic when they warned them of the icebergs in their path? Of course not. The Bible says in, in 2 Peter 3.9, it says that God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to come to repentance. Repentance means to change course, to change direction. That's what the Californian was trying to tell the Titanic. You're headed for disaster. You need to change course. You need to change direction. Doom awaits. John 3.16, a passage familiar to many of us, but if you haven't heard it in a while, or if you've never heard it at all, says this, for God so loved the world, the people of the world, that whoever believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's a good reminder, no? He loves you. He wants you to be saved. That's why he's warning you. He wants you to repent. He wants you to change course. He wants you to believe the gospel message, the one we read about earlier, that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. Because he did rise, he's a living Savior, and he can save you. You have to call out to him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He loves you. For the believer here tonight, just a reminder, you're not alone in this battle. Sometimes it feels like it. You're not alone. Remember what we read in the beginning. We stand strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And like I said in Proverbs 21, the horse is prepared for the day of battle just to remind you that victory belongs to the Lord. He's the one who's going to give you the victory in this battle as we fight a worthy foe, but not nearly as strong as our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Um, Thank you for all of it. But tonight, we especially thank you for Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, as you've provided the way that we can be equipped in this battle against Satan. And we thank you, God, too, that we're not alone, that we can stand firm, that you didn't give us any armor for our backs, so there's no, no reason to retreat, stand and face it. But we're well equipped. We're ready to go. If there's anybody here tonight, God, that doesn't know you, I pray that they would see these warnings for what they are. They're warnings, God, as opposed to quote-unquote, scare tactics. But you do love them, God. You're not willing that they should perish, but that they should come to repentance. They, they would change course, God. If anybody here tonight needs to do that, I pray that you would 
Minister to them and speak to them, God. If anybody wants to talk after, we'll be glad to talk to them, God. Again, help us, God, as believers in this battle. We look forward to the day that we see you face to face, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Have a great time in your small groups.